Hello everyone, this is your host Ramakrishna from Usha Investment Group LLC. Welcome back to Multifamily AP360, the show where we discuss 360 degrees views on mindset, passive and active multifamily investing. For those who are looking for tips, strategies, best and challenging experiences. Also, I request you to share it with those who might benefit and leave a rating and review. Today's our guest is Ruben Greth from Legacy Acquisitions. Welcome, Ruben. Thank you. Honored to be here, Rama. Sure, sure, Ruben. A little bit about Ruben. Ruben has a popular podcast about raising money for multifamily syndication called The Capital Raiser Show, where he learns and you know, educate from the best, best multifamily syndicators in the country. At the beginning of 2018, he was not familiar with the word syndication. Since then, he has participated in the acquisition of 190 units and has now become a fund manager who is building 98 townhomes in Louisiana and partaking in the acquisition of a 670 units portfolio of workforce multifamily in Kentucky and North Carolina. He got his start by doing social media videos for a local apartment investor in Phoenix and successfully raised 625k for small multifamily deals during post-crash buying frenzy. So with that, Ruben, you want to add anything to your background? That's essentially it in a nutshell. I mean, the one part that's missing is that after I raised money and was participating in small multifamily deals back in Phoenix during the real estate crash, I ended up splitting up with my partner and left real estate altogether for about six or seven years. And then when I tried to get back into real estate as a small multifamily investor, somebody told me about syndication and that kind of opened my eyes to this new world, right? How do you raise capital for for multifamily syndications versus the way that I used to, which was raising capital from small joint venture partners. And it's been a wild ride. So I got into syndications with a heavy lift operator here in Arizona, started my show, learned about these different avenues and ways to raise capital, and then was trying to figure out how to take the capital raisers that I was meeting and the sponsors that I was meeting and put them together. And all the attorneys kept on telling me that I, in order to stay legally compliant with the SEC guidelines, the only way that I could raise capital legally would be to start my own fund. So after a couple of years of working with the, the small syndicator, here in, in Arizona, I ended up launching my own fund and partnering with Andy McMullen. And now we do built to rent and we raise part of our businesses is for our own deals, raise capital for our own deals. And then the other half is we raise capital for select sponsors in the multifamily value add space. Got it. Thank you for sharing that. So there are two parts. You are raising capital for your own deals and other uh, raising capital for others. Let's focus on uh, raising capital for other uh, sponsors. Sure. So, Share me, what is your process of you know, finding best operators? Well, it's actually not too complicated. I know a lot of people have very detailed courses and a lot of social media posts on how to vet an operator. For me, I break it down into a simple step. Do I like the operator? Do I like the market that they're in? Do they have a significant track record? Have they gone full cycle on some deals? Are they not just good at what they do, but are they also doing good in the world? And the big, the big one for me is how many of their investors are repeat investors? 
because if the answer is less than 50%, that tells me that there's something, because everybody's making money in multifamily value add. If their retention rate on their investors is less than 50%, they're probably not providing a high quality white glove investor service and communicating effectively with their investors. Because I've met some operators that have been able to return very nice amounts of money to their investors, but then their investors don't come back. And the reason is typically because when somebody gives an operator or you $50,000 to invest in something and they don't hear from you, I mean, this is a big portion of their nest egg in in a lot of cases. And they're very worried about their money and if you're going to be a good steward. And even though you may be providing a great return, I think what a lot of people, what, what I really focus on is what kind of experience does the investor have during that time with the operator? And typically when you find people that are reinvesting with an operator 80 or 90% of the time, that handles my biggest objection, which is what is the investor experience? Yeah, got it. Great points. And uh, for like, this is for both uh, in-house projects and, you know, sponsors. So what is your process of finding best deals for your investors? That's a good question. You know, it actually brings up an internal dialogue that we are as a company are having because when we're going out and raising capital for other sponsors, even though what investors typically want, the trendy limited partner is typically looking for big markets, big deals, track record, and cash flow from day one. And what's happening in the market is there's this trend that it's getting more and more challenging to find value add deals that are profitable, especially with the economic climate changes that are happening in the lending parameters and the lending products that are that are out there. So when we're selecting whether or not we should put an investor into a deal or should we should raise capital for it, we're we're looking at this internal conflict, right? Where do our investors make the most money? And what we're finding is that in the built to rent space, when we raise for our own deals in the built to rent space, It's a lot more lucrative for our limited partners and a lot more lucrative for the capital raising team. And typically these are 506C deals uh, versus when we go and raise money for somebody else, because as the capital raisers, we only get a portion of the acquisition fee and maybe some advanced economics if we're stroking money from from a fund that we've raised. And possibly, you know, maybe some incentives like some cash flow along the way or a back end position. And the, you know, across the industry, people, limited partners are typically doubling their money every five years. Whereas in the build to rent space, in our model, we can double your money on our 506 deals in about 30 months, which is significantly different. You know, the returns are greater for the for the GP team in the built to rent space and the returns are faster and bigger for the limited partners. So then if this is true, why would we go and raise money for another investor when we can make our investors a lot more money for our own deals? Well, part of the reason is because our deals are 506C and that means that we can only target accredited investors. And some of our investor database, they don't have the accreditation status So we partner with some people in the 506B space at times in the past we have. And the other thing is some people, you know, here's kind of a flaw that some capital raisers have. 
is they'll go and they'll find a deal that makes financial sense, that pencils, that they can they can provide a good return to their investors. And then they'll take it to their investor database and then realize very quickly that their investor database doesn't want that deal. Why? Because typically it's because they're not familiar with it or they haven't tr- they haven't begun to trust the sponsor in all different kinds of asset classes. So if you're looking at built to rent, for example, People are very familiar with the multifamily value add space, but they may not be quite as familiar with built to rent and why it makes sense. Or if somebody's in assisted living or senior housing or student housing, or they're getting into other asset classes like mobile home parks, RV parks, self-storage, all of those asset classes are great, but the problem is that the limited partner may not be familiar with those asset classes. So you have to go through this long process of educating and nurturing people to understand why it makes sense to invest in some of these other classes versus what they're already familiar with, which is in a lot of cases, at least within my database, people are very familiar with multifamily value add. So this is these are some of the reasons why we raise for other people versus just for ourselves. Part of it is because We want to offer something to our sophisticated investors that don't have accreditation status. The other thing is we want to keep investors warm and provide them with deal flow in between our build to rent projects, because some of our build to rent projects may not be available for six to eight months, right? We don't do these every month. They take longer to do. So these are the reasons why we invest in some other sponsors, but we are looking at the fact that we make a lot more money in the build to rent space. So we're probably going to double down and lean away from raising for other people and see if we can scale our build to rent business so that we're the go-to guys so that we've educated and nurtured people on this space because it is an exploding trend and people are very excited about it. So they just need to be educated and nurtured about it a little bit more. Yeah. Thank you for clarifying that, uh, Ruben. And and you, you're mentioning about build to rent. So why build to rent? You know, how do you find right markets for build to rent? Yeah, that's a very interesting question because build to rent, depending on what market you what market you're in, is a completely different business model. If I was to attempt to do build to rent in Phoenix or Dallas or Atlanta or in one of these big cities, it's very probable that I'm going to have a lot more red tape to deal with the city. When we're providing architectural plans and city engineering and working with them to put in infrastructure and entitlements, the process is a lot longer in these big cities. You know, there's a need for affordable housing all over the country, but in places that are big markets, you still have to take a lot longer dealing with the city than you would in a smaller market. So we like secondary markets in the Southeast. One of the reasons that we invest there is because land is cheaper. Another reason is because the city will move you along the entitlement process way faster and they're in growth mode. So they will actually work hand in hand with the investors to entitle properties faster because they want affordable housing for their communities so that they can grow. And then the other factor, I guess, would be that our team, our general contractors who are vertically integrated into our business, the acquisition specialist of land and the guy that finds that and the assembler, I should say the general contractor with the assembly teams that come in and put in the infrastructure, put in the the concrete slabs. They have the sheathing crews, the roofing crews, the drywall crews, the electrical crews, the HVAC crews, 
those guys live in the Southeast. So for all of these reasons, we like Louisiana and Alabama and everything within a three or four hour radius of Lafayette. So that's why we've selected those markets versus where I currently live, which is Phoenix. I'd love to do built to rent here one day, but the reality is it's a whole different beast. It's a different animal here in this city than it is where we're currently investing. Got it. And thank you for sharing that. So, so you're uh, building your own in-house team for mainly constructing or you're going with third-party construction team? Our partners are part of the team. So a lot of built to rent companies will have the money. They'll hire out a general contractor crew. They'll hire, they'll go and hire somebody else to find the land. And then they'll just basically pay the contracting crew to do the job. Our partners are actually part of the GP team. So the general contractors are general partners on our team. And the land acquisition specialist is a part of our team as well. So we don't outsource that. You know, possibly the the actual contractors are not part of the team, but the guys that are in charge of managing them are part of the team. Got it. Yeah, thank you. And what is your business plan? What is your exit criteria on this build to rent? So here's another good question, right? So what is the exit plan on build to rent? Because a lot of people do build to rent to sell off to individual houses, you know, to individual retail buyers, better said. But what we do is we build out these subdivisions. We rent the entire place. We manage it exactly the way a multifamily property would be managed with one property manager to cover the entire place. Once it's rented, we sell the entire subdivision off to one single buyer. And this may or may not be as profitable as selling them as individual houses, But in our case, we're much more concerned with the speed and efficiency at which we're turning these properties and going full cycle than we are in maximizing our profits per house. Because if we can sell these properties off, that allows our subdivisions off, that allows us to move on to the next project. And we're looking at the acceleration and velocity of money and we can scale fastest by selling these projects off to one single buyer with the opportunity to sell in different exit strategies if necessary. If there's massive economic climate changes and we can't find a single buyer for some reason, we can sell them off in groups of 10 homes or even at the individual house level. Got it. Yeah. Thank you. And and how exactly lending works for build to rent? It's way different than lending for multifamily because typically when you're doing a value add deal, whether it's a heavy lift and you need to come in with bridge financing and then replace it with permanent agency debt, like a Fannie Freddie product, you know exactly what your rate's going to be throughout the duration of at least one portion of the loan. You know, you may have a bridge loan that's got a three year with some extensions, or you may have a two year bridge loan with the intention to refinance in year two or three or whatever. But you kind of have an idea, at least in your underwriting model, that you're going to have a fixed rate. And in the built to rent space, it's more of a a moving target, right? Because you're building typically 10 houses at a time, and then the lender releases money for another 10 houses and then another 10 houses. And in the process of getting these tranches or these checks that are individualized over the duration of your construction... Things change, right? Lumber prices change. The supply chain can vary. It could cost more money to get products and materials to your site. 
And the lenders will look at that and say, well, now it's lumber is more expensive than we started this. So we need you guys to have different amount of reserves. They may have locked in the rate or they may not have, but that, that lending product that you get for every 10 houses changes throughout the duration of the construction project or can, and that can make some investors, some limited partners nervous about it. So the way to offset that and mitigate that risk is by to very conservatively write uh, underwrite your projects where, for example, on our latest one in Lafayette, we calculated that the rents would be $1,450 per house. And the reality is, is that we've built eight of them so far and we've rented them and they're at $1,650. So we're already overperforming on the calculated rents by $200 per house. And as you guys know, property value, or I should say rental um, costs are increasing exponentially and have been since 2000, probably 11, maybe even before then. They're just, they're getting more and more expensive. The, the cost to rent a house or rent a apartment has been steadily increasing across the nation. So that's, this is kind of some of the things that we're thinking about here in this particular space. Got it. So uh, are you getting agency debts or uh, bridge debts? So neither. It's like it's like a hybrid, right? So it's, com- it's typically community bank lending or regional bank lending or specialized construction lending, which aren't really bridge debt and they're really not agency debt. They're like a specialized lending product designed specifically for construction. They're construction loans. I mean, that's essentially how they're classified. Got it. Got it. Thank you. And would you share any best experiences with uh, Build to Rent or any other experiences? I mean, this is pretty much it. What we really like about Built to Rent and and we're capitalizing on the fact that a lot of people are talking about it, like Neil Bawa and Vinny Chopra, they're in the Built to Rent space as well. So we're just riding the wave. There's billions and billions of dollars that are looking to place money into Built to Rent and or buy finished Built to Rent products. And us as developers, we, we can only provide, you know, maybe two to three to 4% of the entire demand for these products. In the past, I would say like in 2009, 10 and 11, when there was a massive foreclosure crisis across the country, there were these big buyers that were buying a thousand houses at a time. But the problem was that these houses, these REO bulk packages were spread across counties, spread across states. And the issue became, how do you property manage these? It's very challenging, but there's a big demand for built to rent in the sense that as a buyer, you're looking at these communities, all of the houses are in one place. You can property manage them all together. There's cohesion within the community. And it's very different than the way people used to buy bulk amounts of houses in the past after the crash because they can have the property management all in one space. So that would be my last comment on built to rent. Got it. And would you also share any challenging experience built to uh, built to rent space? I mean, the biggest thing I think for me is educating and nurturing your audience to understand why it makes sense. That's a long process. So in the investment space, we don't have a lot of time, right? Once we start our capital raise, we're trying to get that finished in about 60 to 90 days and when your audience doesn't know built to rent, I think that's that's a challenge, right? So we have to educate, nurture people just the way a multifamily syndicator would, right? So they're trying to get people from single family houses 
to invest in syndications or take people from other investment vehicles like the stock market or index securities and move them into multifamily. Well, it's it's the same thing for us, right? We're trying to convince people that there are major benefits in the built-to-rent space, but that takes time. So I would say that that's the biggest challenge is educating and nurturing people into that space so that they're familiar with it. Because I think a lot of people understand the multifamily business, right? If you are a renter, or a resident in an apartment and you're taking care of, you'll stay. It's not that complicated of a business model. You know, you, you fix the apartment, you improve, improve the net operating income, and then you sell the project off in three to five years or whatever your time frame is. In the built to rent space, people start asking questions like, what do you mean you're going to sell this thing off to an institution? Or why aren't you selling these things off as houses? Aren't houses different than multifamily? Why would I invest in this? They have a lot of questions, right? So the process of educating and nurturing people onto why it makes more sense and how much more money they can make in this space, and then handling their objections of like, what happens if, you know, the lending changes and, you know, I don't know if you remember, but in 2008, 9, and 10, there was a lot of buildings, a lot of multifamily vertical buildings that all of a sudden were stopped in the middle of construction and they sat vacant for a while. And that was because there was a big shift in economic economic climate when it came to lending. And I think some investors have the same kind of worries. And then they also look at the markets, right? So you're investing pretty close to New Orleans. How are you dealing with hurricanes? You know, they're curious about that. So you just have to take the extra time to educate and nurture them and explain to them how you've mitigated these risks. Got it. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for detailed explanation on that. And any books that impacted your life and what way, Ruben? So as far as real estate, you know, I'm pretty heavy on capital raising books. Hunter Thompson's got a book called Raising Capital for Real Estate. My friend Richard Wilson's got a book called Capital Raising. Uh, let's see, what other books are there? There's a whole bunch like uh, Oren Claff has got some books and I'm actually getting ready to write a book, but I would say, you know, like the typical ones, Rich Dad, Poor Dad on the spiritual side. I really like Wayne Dyer's work. He's got a book called The Power of Intention that kind of helps you focus on attracting peace to yourself and not be so focused on go, 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 but attract serenity into your life and and look to manifest good things into your life by being a good person. I think the spiritual side of the real estate business or business in general is really important. So I spend a lot of my time focusing in on Wayne Dyer type works. Got it. Yep. And any one advice that you have received had impact on you? Well, I mean, just the opening of the eyes, right? So my when I went off to go launch my own fund, I was very set on my audience that they were multifamily value add, you know, that they that's the product that they wanted. And I was like, I don't know if I can sell this built to rent stuff. My audience doesn't know it. It's not familiar with it. But you know, so Andy McMullen, my partner at Legacy Acquisitions was like, well, let's just, you know, let's let's go ahead and raise capital for other people. That's, you know, we do that anyways, but let's also t- look a little bit closer at this built to rent. And the more time that I've spent looking at it, the more that I've realized how lucrative it is for the capital raising team and the GP team and the fund management team, and also how much more lucrative it is for the limited partner, right? So because typically, as I mentioned earlier, the industry average across the multifamily investing space is people can double your money every five years. Certainly, there's some operators that outperform that. I know some people in Phoenix that do that in 18 months. But typically, it's hard to find an operator that can double your money so quickly in the value add space 
So the fact that you can do that much faster in built to rent was very eye-opening to me and has really allowed me to buy into why people would want to invest in this space. Got it. Thank you. And how are you giving back to community, Ruben? So typically what I've done in the past, I'm not too active in the space right now, but I've gone and rebuilt a few schools with a bunch of people. So that's one of my things. We even actually raised a bunch of money to $100,000. I actually took bottom line to raise $100,000 to put on a carnival for an impoverished school here in Phoenix. And then we actually took the remainder of the money and we went down to Costa Rica, brought them a bunch of supplies, globes and other things that they may need for their schooling. Uh, we rebuilt some of their school and then also, uh, well, that's about it. You know, like we went, we've, we've done those types of projects on a, on a national and international level. I've rebuilt schools in California and also in Phoenix. So that's one of the ways that I would say I'd like to do it in the future. I'd probably like to be philanthropic in the animal lover space. Right. So I'd like to prevent poaching in Africa. I haven't really taken that route. And also, if I could have some kind of impact on animal abuse, domestic animal abuse, that's pretty some, that's something that I'm pretty passionate about that I look forward to working on. Got it. Yeah. Thank you. And how can listeners can connect with you, Ruben? They can go to LegacyAcquisitions.com if they're interested in our projects or if they're interested in learning about capital raising. They can find my show, The Capital Raiser Show, on their favorite platform. It talks about family offices, raising from limited partners, raising from JV, and a lot of topics that are pertinent to the capital raising space. If you're looking to take that on as part of what you do in your duties as a co-GP or just in general as you're scaling your multifamily business. Got it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for uh, sharing, you know, your due diligence process and also build to rent wisdom. Thank you very much, Ruben. You're welcome. Man. This has been a blast. Thank you. It's been an honor to be here. Sure. Thanks for listening to Multifamily AP360. Check out the show notes and grab the freebie on our website, ushacapital.com. Also, if you enjoyed this episode, share it with those who might benefit and leave a rating and review. Follow me on my social media. Thanks for tuning in and I'll see you next time.